her family for the next couple weeks they hadn't seen in a couple years, and so you guys get to fill in. You get uh, you get me, and you get Will. We are pastors here, uh, and we're still learning what that means and how that how that works and what that functions like. But I'm not the normal teaching pastor. So if you are a uh, if you're a guest with us, we want to say welcome, but lower your expectations because this is not what's normal. Uh, if you are a guest, if you look in the pocket in front of you of the seat, there's a little card here. And typically, when you fill this out, uh, Jeremy will take you out to lunch. But since Jeremy's gone, I guess that puts the impetus on us to take you out to lunch. But if you would fill this out and drop it off on the table at the back, we would just appreciate it. We'd like to reach out to you and just say thanks for coming and being here. Um, and we'll buy you lunch, too. So, Will, I, did, I just volunteered you for that. I didn't ask you on that. Um, so, if you have your Bibles, Exodus chapter 12. We're going to pick up in the book of Exodus. Uh, we've been covering this now for some time. And as a matter of fact, Jeremy has preached on uh, the surrounding passages of where we're going to be today for two weeks. So that means that he didn't leave me a lot to talk about, so that means we get out sooner. No, I'm not, not well, maybe, we'll see. Uh, what we, where we are in Exodus is, is the, probably the climax, the pinnacle of the book. Uh, this point in history changes everything. As a matter of fact, Exodus chapter 12, verse 1, just read that real quick. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. So, so right here at the beginning of this passage, which we're going to be in verses 29 through 42, at the very beginning of this, God comes in and says, This event is so significant that I'm going to change your calendar. January is no longer the first of the year. This event right here is going to be what your whole life is oriented around. So, so all of that to say, what we're covering here in verses 29 through 42 is hugely important. Uh, it changes history for the Israelites. It changes history for us today. It has implications for us. Um, and so Jeremy left that for me to preach. So no pressure. This is, a, this is a, a, massive, a massive event in the history of Egypt. But I also found it interesting that as I read and I studied for this, and I tried to listen to other preachers preach on this, there's not a lot of comments on this passage. It's just pretty plain. So, so I don't know what this means and that it's so huge, but not much is said about it on the verses that we're going to be studying. I don't know if that means that this sermon will be long or this sermon will be super short. This sermon will be what this sermon will be, I guess. So, so what we see in this passage, what we're walking up on, what we're going to read and study today is, is the final plague. It is the Passover. It is the death of the firstborn of Egypt, and then it is the beginning of the Exodus. But before we get into that, I want to back up to verse 21, and I kind of want to have a little bit of a running start so that everybody knows what's going on where we're at. So Exodus chapter 12, verse 21, this is what it says. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go. Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clams, and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statue for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt. And when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. 
And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Now, before we go any further, I find it interesting here. God comes to the Israelites and says, take a lamb, pick this lamb out. It's got to be perfect, spotless, without blemish. You're going to keep it in your house for a few days, and then you're going to slit its throat. You're going to capture the blood, and you're going to take the blood, and you're going to paint it up on the doors of your house, and then you're going to pass underneath that blood, and you're going to close the door, and you're going to roast that lamb, and you're going to eat it, and you're going to stay inside until I tell you to come out. Now, how do the Israelites respond when God tells them to do this? Look at the end of verse 27. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Before they obey, they worship. Church, I think before we get into what we're going to study today, I think something that we have to make a note of is that the right response to hearing God's word, to hearing the commandments of God is that of worship, is that we respond in worship. I, I was walking watermelon fields uh, yesterday. When you plant watermelons, it's really scary the first few weeks because they're far apart and it looks skippy in the stand and you're just going, God, please let this make it. And yesterday I was walking along and I saw a plant and it had four blooms in a row. And there was one little watermelon ready to be planted. And you stop and you have that moment and you go, thank you, Lord. Thank you. You know, it's like when you're, when you're in the mountains or at the beach, depending on what kind of person you are, and you're able to stop and enjoy the grandeur of who God is, your heart can't help but respond in worship. You can't help but just go, man, thank you. Thank you, God. Our response should be the same when hearing the scriptures. When we hear the word of God and the commands of God, we should immediately fall on our knees and a response of going, God, thank you for being willing to speak to me. Thank you for being willing to communicate to me. Thank you for loving me enough for giving me these instructions and these commands and these descriptions. So, so Israel responds in worship, and then they turn around in verse 28, they respond in obedience. So, so I don't, it's not by chance, but every Sunday we preach a sermon and then we follow the sermon in song. And the reason we do that is because I think there's a biblical precedence for that. We, we do what God's people have done throughout history is when we hear God's word, we sing a song, and then we leave in response and obedience. So, so part of a setup for, for what we hear every Sunday is that you should, even in, in, whether it's a Sunday morning or whether it's when you're reading your Bible on your own, your response to God, right, response to reading his word, to hearing his word is one of worship, and then it's immediate obedience. It's doing what God has commanded us to do. So people of Israel have done this. They've heard God's command. They've obeyed it. They've painted the blood up on the doorpost. And that brings us to verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. Now, we'll go to verse 30. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. I think we can take this passage and we can divide it into four parts. And this is part one. And the first part is, is kind of an obvious observation. Is the first part is what we see here is we see the death of the firstborn. Can you imagine what it's like to be Israel on this night? You have, for the past few weeks, months, however long these plagues have spanned, you've been able to sit back and you've seen God do these miraculous wonders, these amazing things. But on this tenth and final plague, something's different. You actually have to participate in this one. There's something that's involved in this. Now, when I thought of the Exodus prior to this week and studying this, I always just saw it as God executing judgment on Egypt. 
But that's not the case. God executes judgment on everyone in the land of Egypt. Because if you look at this, what has to happen? If, if the Israelites don't slit the throat of the lamb and hide under the blood, what happens to them? The judgment of God is executed on them. So, so death happens in verse 30. There is not a house where someone was not dead. That includes the Israelites. Everyone in the land that night experienced death. It was either the death of the firstborn or it was the death of the lamb on behalf of the firstborn. So do we have any firstborns in here out of curiosity? If you're firstborn, that explains a lot. Now I get a lot of you. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So, so you're, sitting, you're sitting in your house this night, and God has told you that if you don't kill this lamb, you will die. On this night, you will die. What's, what's your feeling? As you sit there that night, what do you think is going on in your heart and in your mind? Well, I don't know. The scripture doesn't tell us. I know what I would do. On one hand, I'd be going, please let the lamb be enough. Please let the lamb be enough. On the other hand, I don't think I would sleep a wink. I think I would be terrified. But what we find in this passage is what theologians, the big fancy word for it is something called substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement. It is that the payment, the, the penalty that is meant for you is paid for, by, paid for by a substitute. Church, this is the heart of the good news of the gospel. What is happening here in Exodus is only a picture. It only points us to the cross. Because what Paul tells us in Romans 3 is that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? The, the judgment of God is not just on Egypt tonight. It's on everybody that sits in this room. The judgment of God is coming to you, to you and to me. It doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter that you were born in the land of the free and the home of the brave. That doesn't matter. The judgment of God is meant for you. And the wages of that sin, what Paul tells us in chapter 6 of Romans 23, the wages of that sin is death. So here's the thing. While we see this happening in Exodus, the truth, the truth of the matter is, is that it happens to us today. Is that one day you will stand before God and you're going to have a response. Your response is either going to be, I'm going to hide behind the bloody cross and that's going to be the payment for my sin. Or I'm going to stand like Pharaoh did and say that I can do this. I can live according to the way I think I should live. I can do what I want to do. The question for us as we read about the death of the firstborn in these first couple verses is, where do you stand? Do you stand behind a bloody cross? Or do you stand in defiance like Pharaoh? Because what Paul tells us in Romans, and what we studied a few weeks ago when I preached on Romans 6, is that we're like Pharaoh. We want to do our own thing. We have our own sin. And the only payment for that sin is death. Where do you stand? So the first thing that we see just in these two verses, is, is the substitutionary atonement paid for by the Lamb. We read in, in, Roman, or in Revelation, Brandis just read that for us, that all tribes, tongues, nations stand before the throne of God and before the Lamb. And their robes are white because of the blood of the Lamb. Do you see how this is all connected? Do you see how Exodus ties into Revelation? This tells one story. So we have substitutionary atonement. But then the other thing 
that we see in actually in verses 29 through 42 from beginning to end is we see that God fulfills his promises. Now, if you were to flip back to Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, this is when God is telling Moses, Moses, you're going to go talk to Pharaoh. Exodus 4, verse 22, and this is what you're going to tell Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So God has promised that this is what's going to happen. Then if you flip over a little bit further to chapter 11, or you can, if you're still in 12, flip back a page, chapter 11, verses 4 through 6. So Moses says to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the, I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill. And all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. What do we see in these passages? God fulfilling his, his promises. What about verse 12 of chapter 12? Just flip over a page, or maybe it's on the same page. For, for I will pass through the land of Egypt. God is telling the Israelites what's going to happen. I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. On all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will fall you, befall you or destroy you when I shall strike the land of Egypt. So you see here that God's keeping his word. He's doing exactly what he said he was going to do. And the reason I think that that's important for us to note is for you to be able to sit back and go, this is trustworthy and true. You, you can believe it. And you can obey it. And when you hear it, you can respond in worship and obedience. Because he does what he says he's going to do. He is a faithful and true God. So, so God fulfills his promises in verses 29 and 30. So Israel, they've heard God's word. They've responded in worship and obedience and in faith. And then they've gone into their house and they've eaten this Passover meal. Night falls the angel of the Lord comes and it visits the, house, the land, of Israel, land of Egypt everywhere. And where he finds blood on the doorpost, he passes by. And if he doesn't find blood, he goes in and he executes judgment. And that brings us to verse 30, 31. 30 and 31. This is, this is what Pharaoh does. Pharaoh responds. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt. For there was not a house where someone was dead. Verse 31. Then he and Moses and Aaron, then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go. Serve. Serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone. And bless me also. Now, one commentary on this passage, on these verses right here, he talks about how this is just dripping with irony. This is just full of things that Pharaoh said he would never do. Now he's doing. Have you ever had people over to your house for dinner? We enjoy doing it. I like to have folks over from time to time. But you always get to the end of the night. And you kind of get that like, should we leave? Should we go? Should we stay? How, how, have we worn out our welcome? Or, or in-laws, you know, when they're in town, how, long's, how long are we able to be here? Have you, have you ever had a point when someone's at your house where they offend you so greatly that you're like, get out? You don't talk about my wife that way. Leave now. Take you and your kids and leave. I, I've never had that moment. 
But this is kind of what we're finding here. So in verse 31, Pharaoh says, up, go. And then in verse, uh, the latter part of that, he says, go, serve. Now in Hebrew, those two words are emphatic. They are, they are with force. This isn't just like, man, thanks for coming. We're glad you guys spent the last 400 years here building stuff for us. Y'all can go ahead and head out whenever you want. This is, no, take everything and leave right now. Leave this very second. Don't wait a minute. Up. Go. Immediate. Why is that significant? Why does that matter? Well, what did Pharaoh say he would never do when Moses said, let my people go? They'll never leave. The Israelites work for me. They're, my, they're mine. They're not going. And then in chapter 6, verse 1, do you know what Moses tells Pharaoh he's going to do? Moses says, you're not only going to let the Israelites go, you're going to force them out. So what we see here is, again, God fulfilling his promise. Moses is driving the Israelites out. He's saying, you can't stay for another minute. Leave. So, so, Moses, or so, so Pharaoh says, get up, leave. And then he says, both you and the people of Israel. Now, before this moment, Pharaoh had looked at Israel as slaves. They had no say. They had no rights. They, they were less than people. They were slaves. But now all of a sudden he's saying, you and the people of Israel. He's recognizing God's people as a nation. They are their own independent people. Before, he hadn't recognized them. Now he is recognizing them. And he says, go serve, serve the Lord as you have said. Now, there's, there's a lot here to, to unpack just in that, that simple phrase. I'll try to keep it straight. I preached on Exodus 6, I don't know, a month ago maybe. And Exodus 6 is on the forefront of the plagues. This is the prologue. This is what, this is, remember, this is when Aaron and Moses, they walk in and they tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And, Mo, and Pharaoh says, no way, no how, not happening. And so Aaron throws down his, his staff and it turns into a snake. And then Pharaoh says, let me bring in my Egyptians. And they throw down snakes and Aaron's staff eats their staffs. And it's just this cool, like, Snakes are eating snakes, which is weird, but there's this big deal that's going on here. But in that passage, a few things happen that are significant that we need to remember to understand what's happening here. If you'll remember, what this battle is between chapter 6 and chapter 12 is, on one hand, it's a battle between Pharaoh and Moses, but really, but really they're just representatives. They're representatives of God and Satan. If you'll remember, I talked about when Pharaoh ascends the throne to become the king of Egypt, he, he, says, this, he says this little poem, and I don't have it in front of me. I said it that last sermon. He says this poem, and in that poem, he's basically selling his soul to the devil. He's saying, I, let me be like you, Satan. Give me the power you have. Let people fear me like they fear you. So, so Satan sells, or Satan, Pharaoh sells his soul to Satan as a, as a submission to him to get the power of the devil. Another thing you'll remember is Pharaoh wears a headdress, and on that headdress is a crown. And what's the emblem on that crown? A snake, right? It's a serpent, okay? So, so you've got Pharaoh here, and Pharaoh is saying, remember, Pharaoh won't speak directly to the people because Pharaoh views himself as God. So he talks to a mediator who speaks to the people. So you've got Pharaoh here in this moment who has said, one, I'm never letting the people of Israel go. We think back to when Moses first approached Pharaoh and says, I am 
the Lord. Yahweh says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, who's the Lord? I don't know him. I don't, I don't serve him. I don't worship him. So you've got Pharaoh over here who's saying, he's not God. I'm God. I'm Yahweh. I'm the Lord. I'm the one who's in control of everything. And, and Pharaoh is wearing this headdress with the serpent as a sign of Satan. So, so we've got these things going on here with just kind of a broader understanding of what's happening in this passage of who Pharaoh sees himself as, as his, as his location, as his position over all people. And all of a sudden, in verse 30, he says, go, serve the Lord, and bless me also. So there's, there's a few things that have happened in this moment. In that statement, what Pharaoh has done is he has fallen on his knees the serpent is fallen before Yahweh. He has said, I can't, I am not God. Go serve the one true God. So God has crushed the serpent. Most, most commentaries and other pastors, they see this as a partial fulfillment of Genesis chapter 3. God is beginning to crush the serpent to show that, show that he has control over all things. So, so we have here a partial fulfillment of Genesis 3, but then we also have Pharaoh almost in a sense repenting saying, I am not the Lord, go serve the Lord. Go fall down before him and worship him because I am not him. And bless me. So, so Mo, Pharaoh, by re- requiring, requesting a blessing, what he's doing is he's, he's saying, I can't save myself. I need someone else to save me. So, so Pharaoh, almost in these passages, you, you almost see a little bit of repentance and faith. But, but we know what happens. We know that this isn't, we know that this isn't true This isn't true repentance. There is going to be no blessing for Pharaoh. There won't be a blessing for Egypt. What Pharaoh wanted was he wanted God's favor. He wanted wanted the, the, the plagues to end, but just so he could go on his way, so he could do his own thing. What we can say with certainty, as one author writes, is that there is no real repentance on part of the king. He gave no recognition of any personal responsibility. He wanted the blessing without the liability, the shame, or the consequences. He just wanted the plagues to be gone. We know this to be the case because once the immediate shock of losing the firstborn following the final plague had subsided, the Egyptian king pursued the Hebrews in order to destroy them. God will not bless a man who will not repent of his sin. I think this is a very stark warning for us, church. Because I think there are some people who see Jesus as a get-out-of-jail-free card. He's fire insurance. As long as I pray the prayer, and I show up to church on Sunday mornings, and I live the right life, and I do the right thing, I'll be good. But that's no different than what Pharaoh was asking. Pharaoh, Pharaoh just said, God, as long as I can, can continue to live my way and do my thing, just bless me. But he never fell down on his knees in true repentance, saying, like the, like the tax collector did in Matthew, woe is me, for I am a sinner. Right? I think the Pharisee and the tax collector and the two guys praying. And the Pharisee says, God, thank you for all these things that I am and I do and who I am and how I tithe and I give 10%. And then Jesus says over here on the other side of the streets, a tax collector who's just sitting there beating his chest won't look up and says, God, be merciful for me to me, for I am a sinner. Which man went home righteous? Which man went home free? It was the tax collector. Pharaoh and the Pharisee are not any different from each other. Pharisee is a church man. Church, let it not be said of us. 
Let it not be said of us that we stand there and go, God, thank you that I have all these things, that I am this person, and I do all these good works. God, just bless me. Just bless me and let everything be okay. Because that's not how God and his economy works. God raises the least of these. He uses the shameful things of the world to, to, to shame the wise, the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. So the question is, is have you fallen before God in true repentance and faith? Or has your, has your confession been one of acknowledgement, but not repentance? Have you actually fallen before God and said, be merciful to me? So the question then happens is, what happens to those that do repent? What happens to those that do, in obedience, respond to worship and into faith to God? Well, Exodus chapter 12, verse 33. This brings us to the third point. We see an urgent Exodus, chapter, verse 33. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls before being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them. For they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Israel has responded in faith. They've responded in repentance and in worship. They've been obedient. God has struck down the firstborn. Pharaoh has capitulated. He's fallen before and said, I can't do this. And now all of a sudden you get to this part. Why is this part included? Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15, verse 14. There's a guy back there in that part of the book named Abram. And you know what God said to Abram? Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Sounds familiar, right? Verse 14 of chapter 15. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. God is again fulfilling his promise. He's doing exactly what he said he would do. The people of Israel worshipped and obeyed God once they received his instruction. They did, the plague happens, and then God fulfills his promise. Now, what's the, what's the application? What's the truth for us? I think we, we can, it can be misconstrued and saken that if we, if we say, if we do what God tells us to do, then we'll plunder the Egyptians We'll have all that we want. Material blessing will flow on us. But I actually don't think that's what this passage is communicating. I think what this passage is communicating is that if you obey God, you will find that in Jesus, you have all that you need. The Egyptians, the, the Israelites obeyed God, and they ate this meal. And now you know why they ate this meal with their cloaks on and their staff ready and their sandals strapped to their feet, and they stood and ate because they knew that God knew that once this party started, it wasn't going to last long. This was going to be, you got to get out of Dodge real quick. So, so they're ready to go. And, and in being ready to go, before that, they had, they had gone to the Egyptians and said, can I have your rings and your jewelry and your clothes? And then the Egyptians just say, yes, take it all. So God has given them favor. And, and the reason that God has done all this is so that the, that the Israelites, not so that they'll be some sort of wealthy, rich people. God's given them this so that they can find that in obedience, they find that in Christ, in, in their obedience to God, they have all that they need. Church, the same is true for you. When you obey God, when you do what his word calls you to do, you have all you need. And that doesn't mean 
that all of a sudden your bank account is stashed with cash. That doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden you own all the land and your debts are paid and all that's, that's covered. That's, that's not what that means. What this means is what the psalmist says in Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is a fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That psalm points to Jesus. In Christ is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. What are you seeking today to find joy? What are you seeking right now to find pleasure? Because all the things of this world will fade away. They won't last. The only thing that lasts is the blood of the Lamb. Where are you finding your joy and your pleasure? It's not going to be in material possessions. God doesn't promise that. Look at the life of Job, for crying out loud. The guy lost everything in obedience to God. But he lacked nothing. So the Israelites, they have everything they need for this journey because they followed in obedience. They lack nothing. Then the other thing we see in verse 34, so the people took their dough before it was leavened. Now, if you'll remember, last couple weeks, Jeremy's preached on the Lord's Supper, Passover meal. He's made a lot to do with the unleavened bread. We talked about that. If you'll remember, what does leaven represent in the rest of the scriptures? Sin, right? So, so what, what God is saying here, the reason that we have unleavened bread, while there's a point made on that, that there's no leaven, is because the blood of the lamb has been spilt. They have, their sin has been paid for, and so now you don't turn and run right back to what you were doing before. You walk away from that sin. So, so this is actually is kind of giving a foreshadowing, is pointing us to, towards growing in sanctification, growing into the image of who Jesus is, growing in our Christ-likeness. So, so, they don't have, so there's no leaven. They're ready to go. Uh, they've plundered the Egyptians. Now, uh, that word plunder, thus they plundered the Egyptians. The word plunder is, is a military word. We think of, I think of Pirates of the Caribbean, right? Or maybe the plunder, right? So that's what, when we think of plunder, we think of pirates. What God is doing here is now he's reorienting the identity of who the Israelites are. Who have they been for the past 400 years? They're slaves, but now they're an army. They're an army of God's people. And what kind of army are they? Think about what happens in the next kind of few stories. What kind of army is Israel? Horrible. They're an awful army. The only reason they win is when God steps up and does what God's going to do. But if they don't follow in obedience, what happens to them? They did, right? Like this does not go well for them. So, so part of understanding what it means to have slit the throat of the lamb and to step underneath the blood and to hide behind that is to reorient who you are. It's to understand that God has now made you not a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness. It means to follow him in obedience and faith because that's who God has made you to be by the blood of the Lamb. So they've plundered the Egyptians, and now we pick up in verse 37. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds, and they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt. Oh, hang on, I just lost my notes. Uh, they, they were thrust out of Egypt. 
Hang on just a sec. Uh, and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. So, a couple things to make note of here. How many people of the Israelites went into Egypt 400 years ago? 40, maybe? Right? We've got the 12 brothers and their kids who come, come to meet Joseph. Right? So, so back at the beginning of Exodus, end of Genesis, where this line blurs together, there's, there's probably 40-ish, oh, we can double it, we'll call it 80 people there, just, just by chance. Now, if you go back to Genesis chapter 12, again, I'm trying to tie some dots here, connect some dots. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. This is called the Abrahamic covenant. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors I will curse you. Uh, dishonors you I will curse. And you, all the families of the earth, shall be blessed. So we've got maybe 80 Israelites coming in to Egypt at the beginning, right here when all the famines happen. How many walk out? At least 600,000? At least? I mean, you start adding in the women and children, let's just double it. Let's call it 1.2 million, probably even upwards of 2 million people. What was the promise God made to Abraham? I will make your nation great. There will be so many descendants there will be like the sand on the seashore. You won't be able to count them. What's God doing here in this passage? He's fulfilling his promises. He's doing exactly what he said he would do. God has now grown his people into a huge group of people. Now here's the other thing. Verse 38, a mixed multitude also went up. Now, Egypt is a world power at this time. They're the ones who are in sovereign control over all things. And they're sending out raids into the neighboring countries. And when they do that, they plunder a city. And then they capture the people and they bring them back in and they make them slaves. But who all leaves Egypt here? It's a mixed multitude. So, so this means that there's got to be Egyptians in it. There's got to be people from other countries who have been captured and made slaves. And why are they doing that? They're doing that because they've seen that Yahweh is God. They've believed in him. So let's go back to Genesis chapter 12. I will make you a blessing to all nations. God is fulfilling his promise. Again, he is making a people of his own from all nations. Brandis read Revelation chapter 7 earlier. What stands before the throne of God at the end of all time? People from every tribe, tongue, nation. They all exist there. Church, I think it's really important for us to realize that the church should reflect the community. That we should look like the city of Dalhart. Not, not in sin, but in the people that are in the room. I love the fact, when I first came to Liberty, that I saw people that didn't look like me. That came from different countries, that spoke different languages, that had different skin color, that were all different. Because that's a reflection of what the kingdom of God will be you got to realize that white people will be the minority in heaven. There will not be as many white people as there are every other tri tribe, tongue, and nation. Our church should reflect what this community looks like, which means that, like Jesus, we should be among the people. We should be out in the midst showing them who Yahweh is. We should reflect the love that he has for us to those around us. It's why, on one hand, 
we look at Dalhart and we see that it's 50 to 60 percent Hispanic, and we would love for our community, our church, to be 50 to 60 percent Hispanic, but none of us in here speak Spanish. So we want to support Primero, the guy who does. We want to be over there and love him and stand behind him and fund him and do whatever we can to help that church grow because we recognize that those people need Jesus just as much as we do. So we want to be effective in our ministry to everyone. Who did Jesus walk with on a day-to-day basis? Who were the people around him? Yeah, it was the 12 disciples, but man, he was in with a mess of people, those that most people look down on, and those are the ones he loved, and that's who we should be. Because Genesis 12, 1, God promised to Abraham that his people will be a blessing to all nations. God, church, the same is true for us. We are to be a blessing to all nations, to all people. That's why our mission statement that we say every Sunday is we exist to glorify God by making disciples here in Dalhart and around the world. We want to see every tribe, tongue, nation stand before the throne of God. What about you? What about you personally? Who do you live with? Who are you around? Are you just with people who look like you, think like you, act like you, believe like you, live like you, drive like you? Or are you in the midst of the mess? Jesus has called us to be on mission because he is a God on mission. He is reaching us and we are to reach them. Are you a blessing to all those that come into contact with you, regardless of who they are and where they're from? Church, may it be true of us that we are a mixed multitude that reflect the kingdom of God. This brings us to the fourth and final point, a continued celebration, verse 40. The time of the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. Now, we'll pause for just a minute. If you were with me just a second ago when I read of God's promise to Abram, God said your people will be in Egypt for 400 years, and you go, wait a minute. I said 400 years, this says 430 years, what's the problem? Something ain't right here. Well, the way scholars take that and say the way this makes sense is, if you remember, Abram actually went down to Egypt because of a famine. And he spent about 30 years in Egypt. So if you take that 30 years and you add it to the 400 years, you come up with 430. So just kind of a Bible knowledge there for you. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the host of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. What is today? July 4th, right? What's July 4th about? See, see our red, white, and blue? I see we're... we're we're excited about what tonight is. We all celebrate. Sawyer, my two-year-old, his birthday was yesterday. We have fireworks just for that, right? That's what today is about, Sawyer. No, no, that's not what July 4th is about. July 4th is, is about the fact that we get to live in a country where we can do this. And that somebody else who totally disagrees with us can do their own form of worship that we would call pagan. And they can do it just as free as we can do it here. Wow. You get to live in the land of the free. You get to be here. I, I, we have South Africans that are members of our church. I have South Africans that work for us. Those guys are dying to be here. They want citizenship in this country so bad. We, I think of Diadne. Diadne just left. He just got a citizenship a couple weeks ago. 
Guys from other countries are wanting to be here because of what we have in this country. We celebrate this day. We celebrate Memorial Day and Veterans Day because we get to land and live in the land of the free because somebody died so we could do this. We're excited about this. What does the Passover mean? God reorients their whole calendar around these verses. The whole history of Egypt changes because of this moment. Do you celebrate the 4th of July as much as you celebrate your freedom from sin? God has changed, changed their calendars for this moment. We, we get excited about this. We go buy watermelons, as you should, and we shoot off fireworks because it's fun. Man, we get pumped about the 4th of July. And we remember those who have served, those who have died two, 300 years ago so that we could do this. And church, I'll just be honest with you for a minute. There, there are people that I know that if you don't celebrate the 4th of July as much as you celebrate every other thing, they get mad about church. I, I know churches that have parades when they come in, and that's not our purpose here. I am so grateful that we get to live here and that we get to do this free of persecution. But the reason we're here, the reason we do this is because of the blood of the Lamb. That is way more important than a constitution signed in 1776. Don't get me wrong. I'm thankful for it. Praise God that you get to be here. What a gift. There, there, there are people, I, I remember in seminary, I had a, a visiting professor come in, and he had just been from the backwoods of China. And he said that what they had done there is that they had, it was, a, it was a house church. They had 12 people in their house church, or 16, something like that. And they couldn't hold, have a whole Bible, because if they got caught, it meant execution, not just for them, but for their family also. So what they would do is they would take a page out of the Bible, and they would rip it out. And then one guy would have this page of the Bible for a week or two, and he would memorize it. And then the other guy would have the next page of the Bible, and he would memorize it. A and so, so there are people who sit around the world that all that they get of this is a page. How many translations do you have? Praise God that we get to be here in this country, that we get to do this freely. But praise God more for the blood of the Lamb. I'm a little bit afraid that our response to this book doesn't pales in comparison to our response of the 4th of July. I'm afraid we party hard more about the 4th of July than we do about the Passover, about the blood of the Lamb. Jeremy made the comment last week before we took the Lord's Supper that here at our church we take, we take the Lord's Supper usually once a month. And I grew up in a church, I think, that took it once a quarter. And I'm not trying to shade them, cast doubt on them, or say anything's wrong with that. I've been to a church that they took it every Sunday, but the comment on the every Sunday thing, I remember growing up, the argument was, well, if you take the Lord's Supper every Sunday, it doesn't mean as much to you. you, you just, it just becomes something you do every week. And I'm not arguing that we should be taking it every week, but what I am saying is, is church, just as God reoriented the calendar of the Israelites and reoriented their identity and reoriented their purpose, when we fall at the feet of the cross, and we claim the blood of that sacrifice as our own, 
we become a new people. Your calendar should change. Your day should change. Your minutes should change. Because someone was crushed so that you didn't have to be. Someone died so that when the wrath of God would come, and it's coming, you could stand behind the cross and say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. So church, as we conclude, I taught a preaching class a while back, and I argued that in the preaching class, you've always got to have a main point. There's got to be one thing that you've got to drive home every week. As I studied this passage, I wasn't quite sure where to land on that. But there is no freedom outside of the death of Jesus. We celebrate freedom in this country, but that freedom is 80, 90 years, and then you encounter the judgment of God. And then you either will have freedom or you will have eternal punishment. So my question for you then is, do you know freedom? Do you know what it's like to truly be set free? To have all of your needs met? To have everything that you need in Christ? Do you have that? If you don't, don't wait. You, you can't wait another day because the, play, the final plague is coming. And you don't know when it's going to land. You can choose today to expose your sin to God, and He in His grace will cover it with the blood of the Lamb. Or you can hide your sin, and God will one day expose it in judgment. Where do you stand? Do you stand behind the cross saying, I claim that. I claim that blood is mine, because without that blood, I know mine will be spilt, and it will not end well for me. I will be crushed Church, this book is trustworthy and true. From verse to verse, we see God fulfill his promises. He has done everything he said that he would do. And there's so much more to come. We see a partial fulfillment of Genesis 3, but we see the ultimate fulfillment in the cross. And so you can respond, and you can respond in freedom and in faith because he has crushed the serpent. Pharaoh does not have control anymore. So there is much hope for us in this, and there is a great warning. Where do you stand? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you so much for being crushed so that we didn't have to. Thank you for being the lamb that was slain so that our robes could be seen as white. What can wash away our sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Lord, that, that statement is what we cling to today. That statement is what we confess today. And so God, now having hear, heard your word, having heard what you have commanded us to do, to respond in obedience to you, to fall at your feet in faith, God, may we respond in worship just like the Israelites did before the Passover. May we worship you now in song. And God, may we leave this place obeying you. May we obey you completely, happily, and humbly, knowing that you have given us all that we need in Christ. Thank you so much, Jesus, for the blood of the Lamb. In Christ's name, amen. Our worship team is going to come up at this point, and we're going to sing a closing song. My challenge for you at this point is this. Just like the Israelites responded in obedience and worship to hearing the word of God, 
May we do the same. Let's stand and sing.